Good morning. I really feel like the topic we're going to deal with today, it requires uh, a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. It requires a willingness on our part to deal with some things in our life. And so I want to be very sensitive uh, to the Holy Spirit as we deal with this because it's easy to walk in deception and it's easy to um, get off course. And so I just, I just want to just encourage you to be real sensitive to the Holy Spirit during this time. I know that you always come in whenever the word is preached that you try to do that, but, but this is one of those topics. I just want to be really sensitive to what uh, the Holy Spirit wants to say and, and how he wants to move in this service. And so we are in the Transformed series, and we are walking through the book of Acts. And we are all the way to Acts chapter 24. And what's really interesting is to try to preach from each chapter <laughs> because, I mean, here we have another occasion of Paul. It seems like a repeat. We've been going on this theme of Paul is standing before somebody trying to make his case, and he's being falsely accused. And so the first part of chapter 24 is essentially the, the Jews had a lawyer making their case against Paul and making all these false accusations. And then Paul takes his turn, and then he defends himself against all these accusations. And He's, uh, you know, tells his story over and over again, but Paul is being viciously accused of being someone that he is not falsely accused. Anybody here hate being falsely accused of something? Have you ever been falsely accused of something and it just, I mean, maybe online, maybe there was an insult directed your way, maybe there was something that was totally not true that was said about you, but then people started to believe that it was true, I mean, I don't know about you, but that really is something that's hard for me to deal with when people start making assumptions based off of other people's accusations. How many of you guys ever have a hard time just keeping your mouth shut, right, when those things happen? I do. I, I've really had to ask for help from the Holy Spirit. And we, we get, I mean, I don't know about you, I just get, I get repulsed when somebody falsely accuses me of something that I know is not true about myself. But, but here's the thing, I mean, Paul's being falsely accused, and here's the thing we really want to wrestle with today, because we are repulsed, I bet you guys are just like me, we're repulsed when someone falsely accuses us of something, and we hate it when somebody accuses us of something that's not true about ourselves, but how many times do we give a pass when someone falsely admires us? How many times do we actually, we might even encourage it? See, we, we're repulsed when someone falsely accused, but man, I don't know. We, maybe we're not so against this false stuff after all, right? Because, I mean, there's been a lot of times when someone has falsely admired something about me that I knew maybe wasn't living up to what they said it was, but I sure gave that a pass and actually enjoyed it, maybe encouraged some of it. And so what I want to deal with today is uh, titled the message, The False Self. The false self. And the man who stands before Paul, essentially as his judge this time in chapter 24, is a man named Felix who has many false selves. And so let's read this in Acts chapter 24, verse 22. It says, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he, that's Paul, should be kept in custody but should have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And so in this case, Paul is locked up in a sense, but most likely it's like he's got a room in the palace. And so it's not so bad, but he's still restricted, but his friends can come and go. And so it goes on, it says, and after some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness, here's Paul's sermon to him. He's got a three-point sermon. We'll deal with this later, but it's righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, odd sermon. Felix was alarmed. He said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. And at that time, he'd hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. And so he, went for, he sent for him often and conversed with him because of that. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. I have no idea what that means. We'll learn about that next week. I just, 
read that name and I thought it was a funny name. Guys, honestly, I didn't even study it yet. So I'm like, that's just a funny, goofy name. So I don't even know what it means yet. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, I want you to notice something. This isn't even part of the sermon. I guess it's becoming part of the sermon now. But uh, it says that he left him there for two years. Two years. Just because Felix wanted to just kind of drag this thing on. Here's what I want to just encourage somebody with today. Sometimes you're stuck in a certain place. Here's what I want you to know. God doesn't waste anything. A lot of people believe that, you know, Luke is the author, Luke is the author of Acts, and he's the author of Luke. Many people believe that during this two-year period was the time frame which Luke gathered all of his information uh, from Paul and other people about uh, what he needed to write the book of Acts and the book of Luke during this two-year period. God doesn't waste anything. We can waste it, but God doesn't. And so he's there for two years. Now, let's talk about Felix. Felix was a man of many masks. Felix was a man of many identities and many false selves. He, he looks like a guy who's a family man, brings his wife, Drusilla, to go and hear Paul talk about Jesus Christ, like a family man going to church. But as you look and go a little bit deeper, we understand that the picture isn't exactly as it seems because this isn't Felix's first wife. This is his second or third, depending on who you talk about, his first was the granddaughter of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, actually. That was an interesting bit of information. But he actually wasn't satisfied with that. And so he actually seduced Drusilla away from a married man. And she became his wife. So the picture on the surface already is a man who's painting a picture that is not exactly what it seems like. And so he, he's wearing a mask in front of Paul and in front of the Jews. He acted clueless about the way, that's being Christ followers. Acted as if he needed to hear more information. When the truth is, the, you know, the first few ch- uh, scriptures there say he had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. He didn't need more information. He knew all about this. In fact, his wife Drusilla was a Jew And her dad, Agrippa I, was the guy who actually had James, the son of Zebedee, ran through with a sword and Peter imprisoned. He's very knowledgeable about everything that's going on. But he acted as if he wanted to know more information when he knew quite a bit. So we've got more masks and more identities going on here. And also, you know, if you look at even further, it says that he wanted to hear Paul multiple times. He acted as if he wanted even more information, but secretly he wished for a bribe from Paul. He wanted money. So he looks like he wants to hear about Jesus, but he's actually hoping for money. He looked like he was a guy who wanted to keep the peace too. And you could see that because in Rome in that time, they were very, very concerned with riots and and all sorts of disturbances. And so they did whatever they could to quell any of them. And so he looked like he was trying to keep the peace with Rome, but history records him as a very vicious and violent man. In fact, so much that the Jews eventually petitioned Rome to get rid of him, and that's why he lost his spot to this Porcius guy, you know? And so he lost his spot because they, they just, he was just too brutal. And he, he looked like he was trying to be noble and do the right thing for the Jews, but actually he was just trying to be a people pleaser, and he was trying to get everybody on his side. Can you see this guy is a very complex guy? He's got all of these different masks that he puts on for different occasions. And in fact, I don't think that Felix even knew who he really was anymore. Do you realize that you can have so many masks and so many different identities that you even forget who you really are? And listen, this is a problem that touches every single person in this room. This is not a sermon that is just for certain people. Every single person. I mean, listen, I was tempted when I came in this morning, when I come in to put on a certain mask in front of you guys. I was tempted just to, to talk a certain way, to present myself, every single one of us. Now, listen, there's nothing wrong with making a good impression or, or being nice to people. That's not what we're talking about here. You guys know we're... We're talking about a deeper level where we're tempted to become somebody we're not. We're tempted to put on our false self. And so Felix was a man, he probably became essentially like a performer on a stage before whatever crowd he was in front of. He was a caricature of his original self. He was a man of many identities and an abundance of false selves. And he was constantly given in to this temptation 
to live a false self. Again, every single one of us, let me just ask you to be real honest, and this is why we need the help of the Holy Spirit to cut through all of the deceptive layers that we have put on over years of life many times, where it's quite possible that you may not even know who you really are anymore. Because you've had to put on a certain face in front of the church, or a certain face in front of your family, or in front of friends or coworkers, because you want to be seen in a certain light or in a certain way, and you may have given in to this temptation to put on a false self. In fact, you have. I'm just going to say you have, because all of us have. Pete Scazzaro, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Christianity or Spirituality, he makes the case that even Jesus was tempted with this. When Jesus, before his ministry was started, he went out into the wilderness for 40 days. And you know that in the wilderness, there were three temptations, right? And each one of these has to do with a temptation to become something that we're not. Let's look at this in Luke chapter four. Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he also obviously wrote the book of Luke. So let's see what else Luke has to say. And it says, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, I love this about scripture, it just says he was hungry. How many of you guys ever been on a fast? You get done, at the end, you're like, I'm hungry. Have you guys ever gone on a fast before? And it's like a three-day fast or something like that, and you're praying, like, God, I need an answer for this. And like within three hours, you're like, I think I got the answer now. I, I can stop now, right? But when, when Jesus is fasting, he got hungry, and look, it says, the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. So the devil appears to him. Every time I fast, the devil appears to me in the form of a Big Mac Whopper. He just it always takes that form. Here he comes, and he says, if you're the son of God, you're hungry. Come on, do something about it. Take this stone and just turn it into bread. Like, you're right here. There's no McDonald's around here. You could just turn this stone right into bread. Do something. And thus comes the first temptation of the false self. And let me just borrow Pete's points from his book about this temp these temptations. Temptation one is this. I am what I do. There's a temptation to live in this false self that Jesus was offered this temptation to become have an identity in what he did. You see, every single one of us, let's just go back, you're not on the psychiatrist's couch right now or anything like that, but let's go back to maybe early days in your life, somewhere along the way, every single one of us probably had communicated to us in some way, shape, or form that maybe even at a subtle way we didn't even recognize, that your value is in what you do. That if you don't measure up in some way, you've lost some of your value. And listen, every single one of us, and even as parents, listen, as parents, we struggle with this too because we're trying to grow you know, good kids and work ethic and we're trying to do the best we can. But listen, there are just times, even in our best efforts, where the messages can get lost and we start to try to measure up. We try to, and, and even subtly, we, we find ourselves trying to measure up and trying to, to find our value in that. And so what happens is, maybe from a young age, you found yourself chasing that next trophy, chasing that next grade, that next scorecard, right? You found yourself chasing that next, you know, whatever it is, that next championship. You found yourself chasing that next sale as, a, as an adult in business. You found yourself chasing that next title because it, it just, somehow, it just, it helped me measure up in some way. See, we, we don't even recognize it sometimes because we've been wearing this for so long. We find ourselves chasing after that certain bank account number that we said when we were really young that when I get this number, then I've made it. We find ourselves going after those things. Maybe for, for different people, it's that next tour of duty, that next heroic act. Because somewhere along the way, all of these good things even have become part of our identity Maybe, you know, for pastors, I know, I know this, like if you go, you step into my world, it, it would easily be the number of people in your church. And so what happens is, listen, there's a temptation for pastors to do whatever it takes to get numbers of people in their church. They don't even realize that, that it happens sometimes because what's going on is there's somehow this connected value to this measurement. 
We find ourselves going after that next scholarship, that next prayer or Bible reading encounter with God. Listen, this can take on a very spiritual form where we start to even measure our relationship with God with certain things, how much I read my Bible, how much I pray, how much I serve, how much I am a part of the church, how much I'm, I'm connected to the right people, how, much I, how vulnerable I am with people in small group even. Listen, this can get really spiritual really quick. But what happens is we start to take on all of these measurements. We, we can even, listen, I've been pastoring a long time and I've met person after person who are still chasing after even a positive thing of trying to measure up in some way to hear that I'm proud of you from somebody. I've, I've known so many people that are still trying to get an I'm proud of you from their parents and their parent may not even be alive still. But they're still living and chasing after that, trying to measure up. Man, listen, this is on, this is in us so much that it becomes our identity, this I am what I do. We're running as hard as we can from an unaccomplished self. Like we fear being unaccomplished so much that we try to fill our life with accomplishments because we don't even recognize it. We can put good names on it. We can put good intentions on it. We can put good things on it, but we're running as hard as we can from mediocrity because we've learned to measure ourselves by what we do, and maybe so long we don't even know it anymore. This is sometimes I, I, pre, I preach messages and I was telling somebody last night, I was like, I don't know what messages are gonna come out like until I preach them, and I, I was, last night I was in the middle, I was like, oh, this is one of those. Okay, this is one of those. It's very challenging to hear. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. So I've got a question with each one of, with each one of these points, and the question is this, if. If the temptation is I am what I do, here's the question I have for you. Who am I when I don't do? When you're sitting and what's in front of you is no big list of accomplishments to be made, are you anxious? Do you get nervous? Are you uncomfortable? Relaxing? See, I can, tell, I can preach this sermon to you guys because this used to be me. I, I can honestly say used to be me. I used to be this, if I sat down for like 15 minutes, I felt guilty, like I wasn't being productive. And it doesn't just have to take that form. It can take any form. Like if you're looking at a season of life and it doesn't look like there's much to come from it, do you feel a certain gloom, a certain worthlessness? Do you have to stir something up? Who are you when you don't do? Because if you feel shame and you feel guilt when you don't do, let me just suggest this to you. If we have to do, we aren't settled in what Christ has already done. And that's not to say that we should not do things, because God certainly created us, you know, his good work, you know, for good works. That's not to say we're to be lazy. Listen, I, I mean, laziness is not a personality trait, it's a character flaw. Come on, somebody, right? Laziness, slothfulness is a sin. It's not to say that we just sit around for the rest of our life, and that's all. No, it's simply to say if we find ourselves having to do, and we can't just sit and be, because what would happen if you could never do Again, is there something about you that's lost? Like what if the thing that you found you're doing in so much was taken away from you, who would you be? And if you don't have a good answer for that, my suggestion is that maybe we've just found our identity in something other than what Christ has done. Maybe we've worn a false self so long that we don't even know who we would be without the doing anymore. Because if I am what I do, then who am I when I don't? And if you can't answer that securely and confidently, then man, it's time to get rooted back in what Jesus has done for us. All right, temptation number two. That one was so popular, guys. I know that one was just, you guys were eating that up so much. So this next one's gonna be a little less painful. So Luke chapter four, verse five. 
This is the next temptation of Jesus. Said, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I'll give, you, I'll give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If, the, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So first temptation is, I am what I do. The second temptation, Satan shows him all this stuff, and he says, you can have all this. The second temptation is, I am what I have. We begin to measure our life or our identity, this false self, by I am what I have. So then, you know, we've got to have the bigger house. We've got to have the lifestyle. We've got to have the certain car that we drive. We've got to have the certain, you know, whatever it is. Those are all superficial things, I realize, but I can go much deeper than that. You see, because many people grew up either in poverty or luxury. It doesn't really matter. And now we've grown up and, and we have we've kind of drawn lines in the sand that we cannot do without anymore. We have to have a certain thing. I, I've known people who they cannot do without. Their identity is just wrapped up in what they have, and if they didn't have, they, they couldn't do it. In fact, I, I was counseling this guy years and years ago, and his marriage was on the rocks. I mean, he was just struggling with his marriage. And so I sat down with him. And I was like, dude, let's just talk it out. Like, what's going on? And he was like, man, my marriage is struggling. My family's struggling. And I was like, why? What, what's going on? He's like, I don't have time. And I said, why don't you have time? He's like, I'm working two or three jobs. I said, why are you working two or three jobs? He's like, because I got this house to pay for it. I got this car to pay for it. And I got all this kind of stuff. Very nice stuff. Very nice stuff. Listen, God's not against you having nice stuff. That's not the message today. But I said, so you're telling me, I said, why do you have to do all this? To, why do you have to live in that house? He's like, my, my wife just has to have this house. Like, she has to have this thing, and, and I just have to be a good husband and give it to her and all this type of stuff. And I said, so wait a minute, let me just, let me just hear you. You're saying that your marriage is falling apart because your wife has to have this stuff, and so you're working all this time destroying your marriage to give your wife the stuff she wants. I said, your problem is simple. And he's like, what, what, what do you mean? I said, your problem is, I said, downsize your house, quit one of the jobs, and live a happy life with your wife. It's very simple. And he looked at me almost with tears in his eyes, and he said, I can't. I said, why can't you? He said, because my wife wouldn't do that. I can't do that to her. She was so defined by having to have. And he was so wrapped up in trying to give her what he thought she had to have. Can you guess what happened? Yeah. They got a divorce. Life fell apart. Because he had to have. She had to have. Their life was so wrapped up in having to have. I, this is, even goes further than that. I met, years and years ago, I met with a guy who wanted to be a pastor, so he met with me. And this was very early in the church. We, we were, I mean, meeting over in the school, barely, you know, barely off the ground. Some, a few guys were there, but um, we were living... I had, I think, five kids at the time, all living in a small house, couldn't afford a cup of coffee, literally could not afford a cup of coffee. It was like the blessing of the Lord when I could finally rent office space from Starbucks for $1.90 something, whatever their cup of coffee was at that point. Um, that was my office space, and that was like, you know, major upgrade, and I was happy about that. But I met with him there one day, and, and he was asking all these questions about, like, I, I feel called to ministry and all this type of stuff, and He's like, you know, asking all these questions. Then he was asking about like, well, you know, how does the finances work and stuff like that? And I was telling him like, yeah, well, I mean, I got five kids and we're living over in this place and, and it's fine. I, I, can, I can barely afford to be here today, but, uh, but I love it because I'm able to just do my calling and I'm just like, you know, just loving it, you know? And, and he was like, oh, he's like, well, cause I can't make, I can't live on less than $50,000 a year. And this was obviously several years ago, and I'm not saying that was an unreasonable amount of money or anything like that, but he, was, he just said, I can't do that. And I was like, yeah, you can. He's like, no, I can't do that. I was like, yeah, you can. I got five kids. I'm making like $30,000 right now. Like, I'm, I, we're somehow making it. I mean, yeah, we have like, you know, you know macaroni a lot, but we're, we're making it. I love it, you know? Just kidding. But he said, I can't do it. And he walked away that day and almost like the rich man walking away from Jesus. Because sometimes we just think we have to have. 
So how do you know what's important? How do you know what you should focus on? How do you know where your boundaries should be? How do you know where to invest your life so that you can move beyond this, so that no matter what you have, the most important things are taken care of? Wayne Cordero is a pastor out of Hawaii. He's actually one of my favorite pastors. He wrote a book, Leading on Empty. I've read it uh, multiple times. I read it every sabbatical now. And I've quoted, had several quotes from him throughout the years. But one of the principles that he put in place is something that's been so important in my life, and he shares it through a math equation about how you can know to invest in the right things and let everything else take care of itself. So a six-minute video from Wayne Cordero. It will bless you. Let's watch. Do you remember in school, you would have a math problem, and let's say you would have things like two times one, two times two, two etc. Now, two times one equals? Everybody say two. You're brilliant. Brilliant, two. All right, two times two is? Good, you got the rhythm. Two by three is? Good. And two by four is a piece of wood. A two by four. No, 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 it's eight. Yeah, you're right. All right. So, you have in this first column here a common number of two. But you have in the second column something that increases the results commensurately. So which of these numbers, if this is column one and this is column two, which column has the multipliers? Two, right, column two. These are the multipliers here. And you increase these here, it can exponentially after a while increase the results. Now, this is called the multiplier effect. And I want to talk to you about how in your time that you have in your day, you have a certain multiplier effect. And I am here to suggest that the last 5% is what God uses to multiply the other 95% of your day, your life, and give you fruitfulness and success. You say, well, what are you talking about? 85% of what you do, anybody can do. For example, anybody can sit in a church or anybody can do email, not now. Anybody can do texting, not now. Uh, we have cameras watching you. So anybody can do that stuff. Talk on the telephone. Anybody can have lunch, 85% of what you do, anybody can do. You got that? Isn't that right? Okay. 85% of what you do, anybody can do. Now, 10% of what you do, like your job, whether you're a surgeon or you're a salesman or you're an auto mechanic, 10% of what you do, someone else can do with the same amount of training and experience, but with some modicum of training and knowledge, 10% of what you do, someone else can do. Everybody got that? However, 5% of what you do, nobody else can do but you. That's the multiplier effect. Only you can do it. Really? Yep. You see, your greatest asset is going to be your uniqueness. There are certain things only you can do. Well, how many hours a week will that take up in my life, that 5%? Not much. And because it's going to be such a small amount of time, you have to invest it well. You have to plan for it. You say, well, how many hours is that? Okay, let's take a look. How many hours are there in a week? Somebody say 168. You guys are brilliant. That's right. It's a 168. Can't believe it. Yes, 168 hours a week. Now, of those 168 hours, some of it's already spoken for. For example, you're going to spend 50 hours sleeping. That's seven or eight hours a night. Some of you a lot more than that if you're teenagers. And if... <clears throat> And you spend 22 hours a week eating. Some of you, a lot more. And uh, 11 hours a week in personal hygiene, shaving or taking a shower, deodorant. Some of you, um, a lot less than 11 hours. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Uh, 10 hours a week in commuting. 
going to work. And if you live in Kapole, add to that pain and suffering to <laughs> 10 hours a week. And then you have 40 hours a week, let's say at school or work or whatever it might be, somewhere in that combination. These are approximates. So you figure 133 hours are taken up here in things that sort of are out of your control, which leaves only 35 hours discretionary to your own time. If you divide 35 hours by seven days, it leaves you five hours a day that you have to invest very wisely. And I'm talking about those five hours sort of like being your 5%. And if you invest that wisely, this will be the multiplier effect. If you prioritize this, it will influence 95%, not the other way around. You concentrate on this, you might lose that. But if you concentrate on this, you're going to gain. You say, well, what's like that 5%? What are you talking about your 5%? Well, let me just say it this way. 5% is what only you can, thank you, what only you can do. What are some of those things that only you can do? What would be your 5%? Let me just explain some of that for you. And that's the question on this point is, what is my 5%? See, there are some things in life that you could delegate, and there's some things that you should not be doing. Let me give you an example of something that I cannot delegate. I cannot delegate being the husband to my wife. I'm the only one on the planet that can do that, right? That's part of my 5%. I can't delegate being a father to my kids. I'm the only father they have, right? I can't delegate certain things. I can't delegate certain things about, well, let me just give you an example. My relationship with God, I can't farm that out to somebody else. I am the only one who can connect with God in a personal way and maintain that relationship. I can't count on the church to do it for me. I can't count on a book to do it for me. I can't even you know, hear a, another message to do it for me. All these things are supplemental but only I can make sure that I'm intentional about that being a genuine, real connection and I'm investing in my 5%. Only I can steward my gifts and my callings that God has on my life. Sure, everyone else can feed into that. They can encourage that. They can cheer me on. They can give me tools. They can equip me. But I am responsible for stewarding. That's part of my 5%. And so if I invest that five, my time in that 5% wisely, as Wayne says, the 95% can take care of itself. But so many of us are so concerned with our 95% that everyone else has, that everyone else is worried about, that many times what happens, we're so concerned with the 95, we lose the five. We find our relationship with God not where it should be. We find our marriage not where it should be. We find our relationship with our kids not where it should be. We find that our gifts and callings from God are off track because we have not focused on the five. We're so consumed with gaining the world, as scripture says, that we start to lose our soul because it, it's this I am what I have. We found our identity in what we have. And this is a Wayne Cordero quote. He says, God is not gonna hold us accountable for what we have done but for what we have done of what he has asked us to do. You can do a lot of things. You can busy yourself with a lot of God things even. You can look very, very busy for God. The question is not how busy for God are you. The question is what part of that has God actually asked you to do and what part of that are you just doing because you saw somebody else do or because it looked cool? Where's your 5%, right? The Bible talks a lot about contentment. Isn't contentment like a hard word to wrestle with? <laughs> to be content? Contentment, this is kind of one of the ways that God showed it to me. One form of contentment is enjoying what you do have as if it was every possibility of what you could have had. So in other words, 
even though you don't have every possibility available to you like maybe someone else has, but when you enjoy what is in the boundaries of your life as if you had every opportunity to choose something and that's what you chose. To live in that contentment before God. You know what that is? That's like a worship offering before God. It's saying, God, I'm not what I have. I am in you. I just am in you. Paul, uh, Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, it says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then this famous scripture, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, if we're to put that scripture in context, so we take it out of context a lot. You know what this scripture in context means? It's in the ability to be content. Saying because of the strength of Jesus, I can be content wherever I'm at, whatever God has put in my life. That's not to say we don't live in the tension of wanting more and stretching our boundaries. It's simply to say that I can live where God has me right now in full contentment. And if this is all I had, or if this is, you know, for some of us, we need to ask the question, what if God asked me to step down a level in my lifestyle, or down a level in what I have, to surrender some of those things? Let me just ask you, honestly, would you be able to be content, or would you find yourself somehow subtly or clawing or scratching your way back to that other level? Have we found ourselves so identified with what we have that we we become different people when we don't have. So who, who am I when I have a lot? Does it change me? See, God's not against you having anything. God's not against that at all. But who, am, who are you when you have a lot? Do you, does something about you change? Do you look at people different? Do you look at yourself different? Here's another question. Who am I when I don't have? Do I feel incomplete? Do I feel not worthy? Do I feel like I'm not good enough? Do I feel jealous all the time of other people when I don't have what they have? All right, that was good too, so let's go on to the last one. Luke chapter four, verse nine, and 11, nine through 11. It says, and he took him to Jerusalem, and he set him up on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, if you're the son of God, Throw yourself down from the here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning to guard you and on their, hand, hand, on your, their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's saying, let's take you to the most visible place in, you know, in our world, essentially at that time, and jump off and just prove it that you are God. Just come on, just show everybody. Which leads us to this last temptation of Jesus, and this is the temptation that many of us struggle with. All of us do. And that's the temptation, I am what others think. We have this need to somehow prove it to people. We find ourselves living in this constant torment of having to, to live in other people's expectations. You find yourself constantly managing your life and doing things you normally wouldn't do because of the way someone might think about you. This could be very different. It could be a lot of people in your life. It could be this fear of letting your parents down. Come on, even adults. This could be this fear of what it looks like to people, to your friends or your church family or when you make a decision that maybe is a little uncomfortable, a little out of the box, what other people think? I don't know if I should make that decision. And, and everything is gauged on what other people think. You, you, you have all these expectations of coworkers, your spouse, or whatever. I, I said a couple weeks ago in my message uh, about having a hard heart, which, by the way, I'm plugging this again. If you haven't listened to that message, you, you need to go back and listen to it. But I, I said this statement that people will resist a new you, because there are people who benefit from the old you. There are people right now who benefit from where you are right now, and they don't want you to change. They don't want you to be new, because people benefit from you staying where you are. 
So you are going to face resistance. Listen, if you want to do anything new for God, if you want anything new to happen on the inside of you, if you want to grow, you are going to have to push past people's expectations. You're going to have to let go of this false identity of I am what others think. So who am I when no one's looking? And I'm not just talking about integrity. You know, I love that quote about integrity that says, a person with integrity has nothing to hide and nothing to fear. But what I'm talking about is who am I when no one is looking? If people met the internal me, would they recognize me? Because, listen, we, we, can, we can put on a mask so much in front of people. And again, I think everybody here was probably tempted and possibly did this in some way. Today, even innocently, we tried to put on a certain presentation in front of everybody. It's hard to be fully yourself because we fear what others might think. So if you were somehow fully yourself, if the internal you was somehow let out and visible, would people recognize the real you? Or have we protected our image so well that, that we can't let other people in? It's a very hard thing to, to wrestle with. And so what happens is we put on this mask and, and we end up being so good at it and then people, because we want people to love us, we want people to like us, and so we put on this mask, and what happens is, if you're good at it, people like you, <laughs> and you're not a jerk, and people wanna be around you, right? And then people start, like, like there are a lot of people in your life right now who you may think, I think they like me, I think they love me. But here's the thing, here's the question for this point. Do people love me? Or do they love my mask? Do you realize that people can love your mask and not love you? Have you ever felt like relationships are hollow? Have you ever felt like, I know they say they love me, but I don't feel like they love me? You know, I think one of the reasons that is is because We've created a mask that people interact with, and it's not their fault. It's all they have to work with. It's all you've given them to work with. And they may love you, and they may genuinely be loving the version of you that you've put out there. But see, there's a disconnect between the real you and the mask you, and you can't experience genuine love in the mask. And so it feels hollow. It feels incomplete. It feels like... I don't ever connect with people. You ever go to a, a place or maybe even a family or a church and you feel like, I just don't connect with anybody. And there may be people genuinely trying to love you. And they're trying to love the version of you that you've put out available for them to love. But all it is is a mask. And since it's a mask, it doesn't feel real to you. Do people love me or do they love my mask? Because you cannot experience genuine love in the mask version of you. You can only experience genuine love to the real version of you. You know, somebody once said that God doesn't work on who we pretend to be. He works on who we actually are. See, even with God, we can get this, this interaction with God where we've become a person of so many false selves that we try to go before God with our false self. And God doesn't work on our false self. God wants to go with who we really are. And we have somehow pushed the voice of God away from who we really are and we try to let him deal with our mask and say, would you improve this? This is what I talked about a couple weeks ago when I talked about different compartments in our life. Do people love me or do they love my mask? So Paul, he preaches this message. Let me just bring it in for a close. He preaches a message that has weird three points, okay? So Paul is a three-point preacher too. And he has weird points though. He's like preaching to... To Felix, but, but again, let's look at this again as we come for a close, Acts 24, 25. And as he reasoned about, here's the three points, righteousness, point number one, and self-control, point two of his sermon, and the coming judgment, point three. Felix was alarmed and he said, go away for the present. Why was Felix alarmed? Here's why he was alarmed. Because each one of these points, I believe, addresses a false self. And it addresses the false self we've already dealt with. And it alarmed Felix on the inside. Why? Because he was found out. Now here, let me just say this. A message like this today 
can bring condemnation if you allow the voice of the enemy, or it can bring conviction if you allow the Holy Spirit to come in. Condemnation has to do with the past. Listen, if you feel any condemnation today, reject it right now, because that is not from God. But we should want the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Oh man, we should hunger for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because the conviction of the Holy Spirit is when he reveals something to us that now we can do something about for the future. Because that gives us hope. It's painful, but it gives us hope. And see, Felix was feeling, no doubt, conviction of the Holy Spirit, but he also let condemnation rule the day. He says, I can't hear any more of this. So my heart for you is that you don't be like Felix and say, oh, I can't hear any more of this, but we, we jump in and we say, oh, I want the conviction of the Holy Spirit because each one of these three points addresses our false selves, righteousness. You see, because what Jesus has done on the cross, how he took our place, he paid our price, not that it's based on our works and how good we are, it's based on the good work that he has done. The righteousness of God in Christ addresses the lie of I am what I do. See, we can settle that in our heart because of the righteousness of God in Christ. We can rest in what Jesus has done and not what we have done. If you struggle with this, I am what I do, I am what I do, I am what I do, it's because we have not settled what Jesus has done. You cannot come to Christ and walk in Christ. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm saying you cannot walk in him unless you surrender this false self of I am what I do. Because what you're doing is you're taking Jesus' place in your relationship with him. And so righteousness allows Jesus to come and to be our life. For us to be crucified in him and, and to be walking in him. Righteousness addresses that lie, I am what I do. Self-control, it addresses the lie of I am what I have. It, it's simply through the fruit of the Holy Spirit, like, which is self-control, it allows me to be content within the boundaries and the borders of what God has placed in my life. And I can, through the fruit of the Holy Spirit, have self-control and not try to jump outside of the boundaries of what God has put in my life to try to make something happen to fulfill a hole on the inside of me that should be filled with Jesus. Because through the whole, through self-control, God, God can put me in a place where I can, without comparison and without compromise, I can walk in him through self-control. And the last thing is this, the judgment to come. That seems like an odd point, doesn't it? But it simply reminds me that I'm not what other people think because I have an ultimate judge. I don't have to worry about the judgment here. I have to worry about walking clean before a judge, the ultimate judge, the coming judgment. And that's not a heavy thing. That's not a heavy thing. You, you could look at it like this. And this is, this is gonna be so freeing for somebody. It's gonna be so freeing. And, and I, it's freeing for me. But when I realize I don't have to please a bunch of people in my life, that I have an audience of one, and if I make him happy, everything else, I don't have to worry about anything else. Listen, if I make God happy, then I've done right by my wife. If I make God happy, I've done right by my kids. If I make God happy, I've done right by this church. I, if I make God happy, I've done right to my friends. You see how that works? Somebody needs to let the burden just fall off of them right now because you've been trying to make everybody else happy. And it's time to get back to just making Jesus happy. Because if you make Jesus happy, everything else is where it should be. You don't have to worry about judgment from people. We just worry about in a healthy way that I have one person to please. And if I make him happy, then all is good. As the worship team comes back up, I want you to get this message because the, the whole of redemption story, the whole redemption story is an invitation for us to be delivered from our false selves. What happened when Adam and Eve in the garden, the original sin, what was the first thing that they did? They hid and they pretended the very first thing that people did when sin came into this world was put on a false self. And ever since then, God has been on a rescue mission for us to lay down our false selves so that we can walk in our true identity in him. Because God wants to give you an identity in him that you don't have to fake, that you can live free. God wants to give you an identity in him. Jesus wants to let, set you free so you can live 
fully alive versions of yourself who he created you to be. Again, let me refer back to that message a couple weeks ago on a hard heart where I said, any Sean is possible. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about when I say that. It's not so much that any version of Sean is possible that I can just pick anything. The real issue is this. It's not so much which Sean will I be, but how much of Sean will I fully be? The Sean that God has created for me to be. What version, how fully alive will I be in Christ? And that's determined by how fully I will lay down my false self to be able to walk in his identity for me. And so what a beautiful thing that we have today, an opportunity to lay down our false selves, an opportunity to repent, an opportunity. See, a lot of times we think of the word repentance as a bad thing. Repentance is a great thing. Repentance, I've said it before, repentance is a change in the way you think. Repentance ought to not be frowned upon like, oh, there's something wrong with those people. Repentance ought to be celebrated. Uh, look what God is doing in that person. Because repentance is not a change in behavior. It's a change in the way you think. See, if we can get to a place where we repent in this area of our life, then what that means is the versions of Sean that I'm tempted to be to live by others' expectations, I've laid down. The way I've thought is now changed before Christ. It means the version of Sean that found himself one time, it found himself long ago, and I say it long ago by faith so that it doesn't keep creeping up. The version of Sean long ago that found his identity in trying to constantly achieve. Sean has surrendered. He repented. The way he thinks is now different. The version of Sean that found himself insecure and incomplete when he didn't have what other people had, he laid that down. So now, Sean thinks different. Sean has repented. Sean is more free. The burden is off of his back. Now, Sean walks to live to please an audience of one. Isn't that, a, isn't that an awesome thing? Is anybody feeling any hope this morning that you can walk out of here in a different way than when you came in? Would you stand up with me as we prepare our hearts to respond in worship?